All right, everybody, as I was just speaking about off camera, uh, this topic came to me just yesterday. So I want to provide today as more of an overview. And I did find some really good information. I think you'll you'll find some value in this, but I may dig a little bit deeper for next week where we can break down a few more studies to complement what we chat about today. But this was all brought about by uh, some interest in our immediate little corner of the nutrition world uh, from, I believe his name is Herman, I can't see at the bottom here, Herman Ponser, uh, who is an evolutionary biologist uh, or evolutionary anthropologist. He also, in some interviews, calls himself a physiologist, but nonetheless, he is at Duke University, has done some really good research in the study of metabolism. And this particular book came out in 2021. I completely missed it. I, I don't think it made much of an impact in, in a lot of places commercially. But uh, Eric Helms had done a podcast regarding it. Another coach in our industry asked me some questions about it yesterday. So it looked interesting enough to me to kind of dig into his work and the topic at large. So let, let me go into, first of all, I, I have to read you if you didn't already the subtitle, New Research Blows the Lid Off How We Really Burn Calories, Stay Healthy, and Lose Weight. Uh, in other places, it talks about this new science that's up, going to upend everything we know about metabolism. So, you know, that, of course, raises my already moderately high blood pressure a little bit, usually when I hear that kind of sensationalism attached to physiology and biology, because very few things, especially one study or one researcher, changes everything we know about an industry or, or a topic. So that said, of course, I'm a natural skeptic, and I, I wanted to tamp that down a bit because I really do like this guy. As an evolutionary anthropologist, I, I think he has a perspective that a lot of researchers don't, in that from an anthropology lens, he's looking at how things really happen in the wild, culturally. He's probably not involved in a lot of mechanistic studies. You're not seeing you know, too much in a lab, but more observationally. And, and I think that's that's important. That's, that's one part of research that, that sometimes gets overlooked. So this was one particular um, podcast interview that I started with and then looked up some of his other work, some of his writings. He actually has a really good article uh, published in Scientific American more recently, actually, just this year. So let's let, let's dig into what this means. First of all, the, the topic being metabolism, and some of his assertions are how we, you know, use calories, how energy compensation uh, can be altered both acutely and chronically. And the one thing that I think he does really, really well is he he asserts. Uh, his opinion or his findings against some of the more popular myths, just pop culture myths, things that uneducated influencers might be spouting on their social media. But let's let's dig in. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna give you any of my conclusions here right off the bat, but let's go through some of the things he said. These are direct quotes from his interviews, from his papers. Uh, he says, first of all, it is a misnomer that we can raise our metabolism. Uh, I hope that you have garnered that from me through 
my work or some of our research reviews, but you don't change your metabolism. You can't increase your metabolic set point. You can't change your DNA, but acutely our behavior from a food intake side and an expenditure side certainly does change our functional metabolism, the amount of calories that we use today, that we use this week, next week, et cetera. But overall, are we permanently changing our DNA? You know, largely no. Epigenetically, I think you could probably attribute any real change to the behaviors you sustain. So again, it's not necessarily changing it at that, that DNA level. Um, but, you know, even things, as I mentioned here, like sleep, activity, intensity of activity, things like that, 100% change your calorie expenditure. We, of course, can control our calorie intake, but we have to get that definition of terms settled first. Uh, if you think of your metabolism as what you will just physically alter in your body because you've done something and therefore permanently changes your physiology, then I totally agree with his assertion. And I don't find that groundbreaking. I don't find that new science. But to some people who believe some of the shitbaggery out there, then maybe that is new to somebody. But this, the second thing that he talks about, uh, expenditure through exercise. This is one of his big points. Expenditure through exercise and diet are two different tools. Not your choice necessarily to eat less and exercise less, or eat more and exercise more. I get that question a lot. Should I do more cardio and just eat a little bit more? Or should I eat less and just not worry about as much cardio? He says that's kind of a false equivalency. That's just not how it works. These are two different things. And his biggest assertion is we should always focus on fewer calories. If you want to change your body composition, if you want to maintain fat loss, it's just not the exercise that's going to do that. Now, interestingly, he contradicts himself in a couple different ways, but this is where you have to think again, biology versus anthropology. From a biological standpoint, the average person who does more exercise and so forth, and that increases a calorie deficit functionally, you are absolutely going to see that that is a tool you can use for body composition. His assertion is in the wild, in cultures, in people groups, you don't see that because the person who just moves more, increases activity, or exercises more, they just tend to eat more. The hypothalamus increases hunger cues, we eat a little bit more, and the person who focuses on exercise as a weight loss tool, they don't do very well. The person who focuses on calorie intake and reducing that, that's where the money is at when it comes to weight loss. So again, I, I can't say I disagree with him. I actually agree with him, but it depends on whether you're looking at it biologically or anthropologically. Um, let me move on to the next one. Continue with exercise being for other things, as he says, not necessarily for fat loss. I think I just kind of answered this, but one of the things... Um, you know, he does say is exercise is totally necessary for all the other things. Uh, he said, if you want to reduce your risk of disease, if you want to be healthier, have increased longevity, move, do more exercise, move, move, move. It's not that he's anti that, but when you look at his 
publisher and the marketing hype around the book, because that's a commercial endeavor, that's one of the things that gets sensationalized in the messaging. Uh, so I agree that all the physiological benefits of movement and exercise are perhaps even more profound. Research proves that having a higher BMI, but being well-trained is better than being leaner and inactive. So activity is still, as he said, it's it's so profound, it's so critical, uh, but it's just different than fat loss if you're looking at it anthropologically. So here's one of the things he did, and this, this is a great way to do what he did, which is create kind of a brand, create a book that a commercial publisher has interest in, is he bases it. If you look at any self-help books, anything in nonfiction, it usually gets centered around some experience. It's not just an opinion. So his story is that he has studied the, the Hadza community of Tanzania, a very primitive hunter-gatherer group. And he has been working with that particular group because, again, anthropologically, it's a great way to look at almost our ancestral roots. You know, us in normal Western culture, where all of our food comes from the supermarket and we just sit in climate controlled offices, very different than somebody who's still living in a grass hut, you know, just hunting and gathering what they're going to eat for the day. That's a really good picture of, you know, some of our evolutionary roots. So this group or these groups, these people in in Tanzania, females average walking about 13,000 steps a day, men 19,000 steps, and their metabolisms, calorie needs, this is another one of his huge, huge, huge points, their metabolisms and calorie needs were no different than ours. There's just, there's again, there's such a contradiction in the way this can be stated, in the way he does state it, if you're not careful about what you're describing. So he would say, and this is this is in his interviews, this is his big point. This is his like aha moment. His, his main contention is no matter who you are, no matter how many calories you consume, no matter what your daily activity is, the human metal human metabolism is the same across the board. In other words, you could consider that to say, well, it doesn't matter what we do. We can't change anything. It's just our primitive DNA. So them, this group, averaging 16, 17,000 steps a day, their, their calorie needs are no different than ours as we sit on our couches and watch reruns of The Simpsons. But that's not true because then he also says, oh, by the way, they burn more calories in a day than we do in a week. Here's, here's what, what I think is very interesting. You, you almost have to start looking at some other extreme groups. If you look at the Holocaust and you look at something like Birkenau or Auschwitz, those people often had one potato, small rotten potato, or one slice of bread a day. Many of them died of exhaustion and starvation and so forth. But the ones who lived for two, three, four, five, six years, their metabolic rates adapted to that. And that's part of this guy's contention, Ponser. Um, but it's it's not that easy to make that jump. So, you know, can you really say that their metabolisms are the same as ours? Because here's, here's what we're going to get to in one of my final points. All of these people in, in Tanzania, super high activity levels, uh, 
very low body weight, uh, so low body fat percentage typically. Um, the rest of the day, you know, just at rest, let's let's assume that there's another 16 or 20 hours a day that they're kind of at rest. Their basal metabolic rates are simply going to be lower because they're so much healthier. So that is exactly how that compensation works metabolically. They just don't need as many calories. If I'm 250 pounds as a Western American, the, the, the stress on my heart, lungs, muscular system, just to breathe and walk in my resting heart rate, maybe 85, where one of these people in Tanzania, their resting heart rate's 40. Of course, I'm burning more calories than they are. That's not a great thing. We know that the lower your metabolism is, the better your longevity uh, rates are going to be. So it's it's something that happens naturally because of both our hunger cues and so forth and, and our activity level and our just body composition status. This is not new science and to attribute it, you know, our physiology or to compare it to this, this group in Tanzania, it offers a nice comparison, something interesting, but not fundamentally a good comparison. So let's, uh, let's keep going. I want, I want to give you guys all these points and then we'll kind of talk about it. So uh, another assertion he makes, which again is true, evolution has crafted us to spare calories. Uh, very, very true. I mean, that's what our bodies want. We in the land of abundance and dying more from overage than scarcity. Yeah, we're we're fighting a very uphill battle because our bodies are are evolutionarily pressured to spare calories, to store energy. That's why when you start to eat something, you get the, the hunger cues to keep eating, 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 eating until biochemically your brain gets a message that, okay, we're, 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 we're hitting the enough point and then you stop. Completely what we don't want as people trying to lead leaner, healthier lives. So again, it's the, the, one of the mistakes, I think, in interpreting his work here would be thinking that we can elevate our metabolism or that that would even be a good thing. In fact, you want a slow metabolism. You want to be so lean and so healthy that your resting heart rate is so low that your, your metabolism is as low as it can possibly be. Your hunger will come down to match that. And as long as you're getting appropriate nutrition, that's the best way to create health and longevity. So again, that's just kind of the counter culture he's swimming against to begin with. So number six, uh, and this is his big thing. So, so his whole summary to all of this uh, is this statement, ultra processed food is the enemy. When he says, should you do paleo, should you do keto, low carb, high carb, this, this, he said, it doesn't matter. The thing that's killing us is ultra processed food because we have these evolutionary drives for hunger and for creating energy balance. And yet in Tanzania, for example, it takes them a lot of the day to gather enough calories for themselves and their children. So there's high activity and then there's very nutrient dense, unprocessed, high volumetric amounts of food, a hundred percent different than we do. 
So uh, he even quotes uh, a colleague of his who has done some research, again, very anthropologically, showing that just just the, the reported hunger comparing a high-protein, high-fiber diet to ultra-processed food is just a completely, you know, apples-to-oranges comparison. So, you know, some of these things, this is why I kind of scoff a little bit from the marketing spin, calling this new science and revolutionary and so forth, is if you guys have watched any of our research reviews for the last three years, you know all of this stuff. You've seen it in our series on hormones and hunger in the metabolic switch and so forth. So when you have, even the insulin model that has been kind of upended in the last decade, it, it's, you have some of the behavioral traits that happen with high sugar foods, that that high palatable flavor type thing that, that increases your hypothalamic uh, hunger cues, but then you, you typically don't eat sugar alone. I, I know very, very few people who, if you're eating processed food, it's just carbs. Look at those labels and you're seeing high processed carbohydrate, but also tons and tons of saturated fat. And that's what's doing the damage when you really pick this apart in research. So I think this is the last one, but uh, virtually all of the indicators and causes of obesity are in the brain. This this was this was an interesting thing that I, I think you know he brings out very well. Um, and again, going back to the hypothalamus and things like that, all of the hunger that we have, all of the impulses due to things like dopamine as well as just the the hunger cues are are in the brain and he's he it's it's interesting that he approaches it that way or at least as a sidebar um when you're when you're talking about all the behavioral things you can change should i exercise more should i weight train more should i eat less of this food more of this food what should i do how dr Ponser, can i have the highest best most functional metabolism possible He's like, well, it all starts in your brain anyway. It's it's the biochemical responses, which again are, are things you guys all all know. Or if you haven't been around, you know, our library, research review library might might help you quite a bit. So here's here 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 are some of the things I think if you really want to take a look at some of his research, uh, you know, his his new science is that eating less is more important than exercising for fat loss. So that's one of his main points. But he still says exercise is still super, 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 super important. That our metabolic rates adapt to lower energy demands and are driven by changing levels of hunger. You might even think of the Minneapolis starvation or the Minnesota starvation study. Uh, if we move more, we eat more. So those Tanzanians, uh, he estimated that their calorie needs per day were anywhere from 3,000 on up in calories. So that's one of the contradictions that I find a little ironic in that because they do burn more calories than us, they move so much more, their calorie intake needs are very, very high. There still may be some adaptation just based on scarcity. If they can't hunt and gather as much and they are living in a state of perpetual scarcity, then homeostatically, the, your body will certainly downregulate what you are burning metabolically. We see that in studies all the time with non-exercise movement. You simply slow down more. Um, we can't force our genetic metabolisms to chronically adapt upward for the benefit of staying leaner. Um, so again, th that's nothing new, but it simply counters the non-educated influencer marketing hype, as I said earlier. 
So in the interview, Ponser goes on to extol the massive value of exercise, calling it the rhythm section of our physiological orchestra. He said, if we're not if we're not moving, if we're not exercising, if we're not burning all these calories, then it will lead to disease. So again, on one hand, he says, don't worry so much about exercise because that's kind of the marketing spin. My new science, my way to sell you a book is that it's I'm showing you it's all about the food. But hey, don't forget about exercise. It is the most important thing. So, you know, not not picking on the guy, but that's that's just what I think is what happens when you start trying to sell something. His premise is more about adaptation. If you really get down to the science, if you could have him sitting at a round table with other scientists and you could get away from any sensationalism, that's his main premise, that our body certainly, you know, can adapt to energy balance, i.e. my Holocaust example. Um, but just, you know, you kind of have to push away some of that other stuff to get to that. So I got all that from some of his interviews, uh, which were all about the book. So I think he was kind of going through some of the main points about his book. But then he did write this article in Scientific American, which I thought was a little bit clearer, um, which often it should be. He has the time to sit down and edit and create different drafts of this versus spontaneously asking questions. So some of the, some of the things directly out of this article... The first comprehensive study investigating the effects of age and body size on daily energy expenditure has upended, so again, kind of a sensational word, much of the conventional wisdom about metabolism. Metabolic rates increase with body size as expected, but they are not inherently different in men and women, nor do they decline with middle age, among other revelations from this research. So again, without being critical of this guy, because... I like him and I like what he does. There are some things here that I think are just overemphasized. For example, this is the top part of a graphic. Then the next slide shows uh, the bottom part of the graphic. He says metabolic rates increase with body size as expected, but they are not inherently different in men and women. The first couple times I read that sentence, I'm like they're not different in men and women. So men and women should eat the same amount of calories. And when I show you this graphic, it makes you believe that. But then he also, there, there's that little precursor, the, the little qualifier that says metabolic rates increase with body size. So let me use Dr. Souders. Here's an example. I'm, I'm going to guess Dr. Souders' lean body mass because she's a female, I'm a male. So we should have the same metabolism. Lean body mass being 85 to 90 pounds, maybe. And my lean body mass is probably about 155, 160. So since I have almost twice or maybe two thirds or three fourths the, you know, extra uh, lean body mass, then I would need that many more calories. So if you read this to say it's all about body size, then you're correct. It's not inherently that you are female or male, nor do hormones like testosterone have much to do with this. If you remember from our research review series on hormones, uh, adrenaline-based hormones, norepinephrine, epinephrine, kings, the kings when it comes to metabolism. Next come thyroid hormones. The androgens like estrogen, testosterone, they do virtually nothing for metabolism. 
So again, this could be something like just a pop culture thing that he perceives is out there that women's metabolic rates, you know, women should only eat this many calories, men should eat this. Yeah, but it's not necessarily the sex. It's the fact that men just have more lean body mass. So one of the interesting things that he did with this study was to really look across the board that they went from babies under a year old to people in their 90s. So when you look at this, first, let me start on this second chart over here on the right. Um, this is the one that looks at men versus women. So if you look at this scatter plot, you see the men and women noted by the circle versus the diamond shapes here. They are virtually identical. Those Look at those metabolic rates, identical, 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 no difference between men and women with the caveat that it depends on lean body mass. So if you have a lean body mass like me of you know, 150 to 160 pounds as a female, then great. You probably need the same amount of calories I do. Um, so maybe that helps somebody that is not sex driven, but but uh, body weight driven. Uh, the other one is th th this big change. And, and I have this written out a little bit, maybe more clearly in the next slide. But metabolism over time from birth to death, there is a sloping but let me let me show you on this next slide um, what they really found. So first of all, in this particular study, they did very good metabolic cart type testing uh, to, to look at metabolic rates of looking at expired carbon dioxide, which is the gold standard. Um, and they they would test people from one to two weeks. So they got a nice broad spectrum of their metabolic rates. And they had more than 6,000 people from, I think, you know, several different countries, all the way from eight-day-old babies to, to 90-year-olds. So this is a broad look at basal metabolic rates cross-culturally uh, with, with sex and age, you know, also just rounding out exactly, you know, all the differences that we may be able to find. So what they did find is fat-free mass, like I said, is the strongest predictor of your metabolic rate. So as people who love to talk about weight training will often say, you know, lift weights if you want a stronger metabolism, get more lean body mass, helps with a lot of different things, bone density and so forth. Metabolism skyrockets in the first year. This was kind of news to me. I don't, I don't remember ever studying this, you know, across the entire age spectrum, but from birth to about the first year, a baby's metabolism is about 50% higher than you would expect from the rest of the norms, you know, as, as an adult would. So per their body weight, their lean body mass, they are churning through calories. And then that stays elevated all the way through childhood, as those of us who have raised children understand. And, you know, starts to slowly decline in adolescence, levels off around 20 but then here is something that was nice to look at, you know, from an evidence perspective to about 60 years old. And again, pretty big study, 6,400 people of all different kinds of activity levels. There just was no change. It didn't, didn't change with metabolism or I'm sorry, didn't change with menopause. Didn't change, you know, whatever you might say is middle age, thirties, forties, fifties from about 20 to 60 basal metabolic rates pretty much just stayed the same. So I, I think this again goes back to one of his main premise points. This to him, you know, being an evolutionary anthropologist, 
who studies or has become interested in metabolism, I can see how this was news to him, how this was very, um, you know, maybe rocking to his world because you hear of these things like, yeah, as soon as I hit menopause, man, I just started gaining body fat like crazy. Or, hey, as soon as you hit your 30s, you start gaining weight. And we attribute that to metabolism if we're not careful. But I keep coming back to our research reviews because you guys have seen this presented over and over in different ways. It's not. It's all dependent on our activity. Uh, you know, those of us who might say, well, yeah, you know, as soon as I hit my, you know, my 30s, I start gaining weight. Well, what were you doing in your 20s that's different from your 30s? Let's look at your your daily activity. Let's look at your job. Let's look at your occupation. Let's look at your recreational athletics or intentional athletics. That's where it all is. So again, could be could be news to somebody. Uh, there is a very slow decline after 60 and your metabolism will generally decrease about 7% each decade after 60. And this is another point where it's a little bit of a contradiction. If you take some of his assertions on face value, it's largely due to decreased activity, which also leads to lost muscle mass. And so it, you know, calorically still our activity is a big factor. So if you go to his main couple of premise points, which I, I think I may just actually point it out here. Let, let me wait. Let me wait till the end to say that. Um, let, let me let me go in instead, transition right to his his Hadza um, findings of this particular group. So so this community, this tribal community, again, they they acquire meaning hunting and gathering. They go out every day and they acquire three to five thousand calories per person per day enough for their own personal calorie needs and those of the children they may be feeding. Um, one of the interesting things that he makes as an anthropologist, this is why I think some of his work is very, very cool. He compares us to other primates, uh, not only our metabolic differences, because we do have higher metabolic rates relative to all of the other primates, sometimes twice as high, uh, a lot because of our, our brain needs, brain being so much larger and 20% of our calories are used by our brains. But we also, going back to how and why we even evolved, uh, whichever you want to think came first, the chicken or the egg, uh, you, you always hear about cooperation, right? Language, cooperation, how we kind of moved up the food chain. Uh, we share. Uh, one person may be really good at hunting. One per person's good at gathering. Most of these communities, they come together. There's some form of collectivism. And with most primates, there's just not. It's kind of, you know, you're out there getting whatever you can. They care for each other, uh, or I should say primates do. Even today, he in the Scientific American article, he uses the metaphor of a picnic. Like everybody brings a dish to the picnic, right? Like you brought the hot dogs, you brought the potato salad, and, and like we all share. And that's what he found in this community as well. That allows for some diversification of nutrients. It allows for distribution of even micronutrients differently. And, and it kind of gives everybody enough food and, and also even more. So we can, we can support our calorie needs, which are higher than other primates. And the fact that we have children who are dependent even longer. So again, that's the really cool, fun anthropology stuff of his work. Uh, but I just didn't find much of the biology new or revolutionary. Um, but we non-Hadza hunter-gatherers 
don't walk 13 to 19,000 steps per day mostly. I know some of you actually do. I know you guys are tracking your steps. Some of you are targeting 10 or even 20,000 a day. Um, but again, they're they're eating berries and vegetation and roots and small game. They're not out there getting Lucky Charms, Baconators, and Mountain Dew. So he he comes back to, again, that ultra-processed food being the thing. Um, so here's here's my commentary now on his work. So, uh, you know, I, I watched some interviews, read some articles, and I think I have a pretty good grasp, but I, I will will definitely tell you that I have not read his entire book. If if I continue the series into tomorrow or into next week, I, I will actually go through some of the studies he has done. And I'll look at some other studies to see how this compensatory energy balance is. Because his one of his main contentions, remember, is that calorie needs just don't change. You can exercise all you want, exercise, 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 exercise. You're not going to lose weight. That's his contention. Doesn't work. But it does. <laughs> it does if you account for it. If you just intuitively eat, then more exercise, four hours on the step mill you're probably just going to eat more because you're hungrier. But if you don't eat more, then those are calories burned, just like those Hadza hunter and gatherers. So the biology is that A, this group that he's comparing us to are just leaner, healthier, and more efficient physiologically. They should have lower basal metabolic rates. Functionally, they're burning more calories. Basal metabolic rates are lower so again, not an apples to oranges comparison. Um, the fact that we therefore metabolically, or the fact that we therefore metabolically equal is not an indication. Did I write that right? Oh, the fact that we are. Uh, our bodies adapt to species-wide genetic norm, but it's also individual adaptation to physiological needs. So again, take one of those Hadza hunters, put them on a couch, give them a Western diet, and what's going to happen? Is his basal metabolic rate going to change? No, but his functional metabolic rate will. And that's kind of what we're talking about. I, I just think he's looking at the wrong side of the coin too much. Exercise can indeed be a huge part of proper calorie deficit and weight maintenance if accounted for and complied with. So his assertion that don't worry about exercise for weight loss, don't worry about exercise as part of your weight and health maintenance but then kind of do because it is physiologically important for him to say it's not going to help you with weight loss focus just on the calories it's just it's just not true as long as you are accounting for it properly and i will say that one of the people interviewing him they had a brief aside where the interviewer said well yeah that's why i don't even track calories anymore i just find tracking food tedious monotonous so i just don't even do it anymore well, now he just put himself in that in the wild anthropological study group, which, you know, that that may work for that person then. But if you're if you're being diligent and meticulous in any way of accounting for your food, then calorie expenditure is still going to work for you. So, again, you know, the anthropology to his point, that's that that's the value of that is if you're looking at an entire society, which is what an anthropologist does and you're doing epidemiological studies to say, if we make this one change, what happens to the movement of the entire society? How does that change society? Then he has a really, really good point. 
I think most of us have moved beyond that where we spend a little bit more time on the on the mechanisms of what we're consuming and so forth. But let's uh, let's talk about it. Somebody here had a chat here. We humans also use fire to liberate calories and certain foods, as do the Hadza and so forth. Uh, there are actually something like five or six theories of why our brains evolve like they have. Uh, fire being one of them, especially with carbs, because if you're eating things like raw potatoes versus cooked, you get up to 20 times more energy from something that's cooked. So we could all of a sudden with magnitudes of leverage, get more calories because we started cooking our carbohydrates. Today, processed foods, et cetera, you know, that, that kind of backfires. But let's uh, let's jump in, guys. Who has some uh, some thoughts or questions or comments? I have a quick question. Sir. Um, so you kind of mentioned at the end there where, you know, if you are diligently tracking, you are going to want to track the exercise and the calories burned. How would you typically go about that? Like, are you averaging, hey, like, you know, roughly 250 calories in a weight training uh session do you kind of go they have a, a watch i know that those aren't the most accurate but we can kind of roughly go off that so like how would you then like balance the two so I, that's a really really good first question because I, I think everybody has a little bit more variability in what feels best so i've always said that i'm somebody of a slower metabolism who has to have a certain amount of higher intensity activity. I can absolutely just drop my calories even lower, but for me to have some higher intensity activity and then a little bit more food to offset that, you know, I'm finding my own sweet spot to manage hunger, performance, energy throughout the day. And just, you know, maybe that's not phenotypically standard across the board for somebody who's a bit slower metabolically, but I know that works for me. I am just not going to lose much body fat if I'm not cranking out some energy. Um, other people with a faster metabolic rate, they, they may be fine just kind of walking. Maybe they do zero cardio. They move their calories down just a little bit and they drop fat like crazy. And maybe that's just more comfortable for them. So like maybe just like in terms of hard numbers, let's say to create, you know, the 500 calorie deficit. So would you in your in your instance to then almost just go, okay, I'm going to eliminate 250 calories from my diet and add in a, a theoretical 250 calories of extra activity. Yeah. Yeah. And to, to your first question about how to calculate that, everything has some algorithmic assumptions. So with your wearable device, it's not measuring your actual respired gases to tell you exactly what you burned. So they just have to make an assumption. Well, this person is this sex, this height, this weight, their heart rate for this amount of time is like this. And so they can get really, really close to that. Uh, but again, they can kind of inflate those numbers just like cardio equipment does to make you like, I really like this machine better because I burned I burned 8,000 calories in 20 minutes on that step mill, which you know is a lie. I, I find that most good physiological textbooks that give you those charts. If you're rowing a boat for an hour, here's what you get. If you're mowing the lawn, here's what you get, you know? So I, I think like you're right at 250, 300 calories of moderate exercise. Yeah. yeah. Okay, cool. Good question. Dr. Souders, what do you think? 
I think it's pretty fascinating. And in fact, I wanted to ask you, Joe, um, you know, it's always been something that we've discussed as part of the, the diet doc um, is, you know, ectomorph, endomorph, mesomorph. Would you care if I showed you a, a, a share screen of what I currently look like? Huh, yeah, uh, let me see. if. And I want you guys to, to talk about what my calories might look like. Okay, I think you can share now. Go right ahead. Whoops. Uh, clicked the wrong button. Okay. There I am. World record holding power lifter. So as you can see, and this is my just like trying to gain body. I mean, so you can see I'm not carrying a lot of fat and I'm trying to eat more. And, um, and you know, I don't do cardio per se. I walk, but I wound up, I wind up without intentionally trying to, um, you know, I'm, I'm somewhere between, I average like 8,000 steps a day. And so my biggest problem is, um, you know, I, I don't know that I adapt <laughs> down as much as I need to, because when I try to gain weight and add an extra couple hundred calories, I just like get stuffed and it's that metabolic set point. It feels like, you know, it's very, it's very easy for me to drop. In fact, I just didn't have a lot of hunger this week. Um, I normally should be eating, you know, about 300 calories a day more than I have been. Um, and I just, I just didn't have the hunger and I've already lost a pound in one week. So just like the GLP-1 agonist, the Wagovi, Ozempic, everybody's talking yeah. about, like you naturally just have that suppressed hunger. Your body, yeah. for some reason, is genetically not out there looking for calories. So you are you are trying to force food and your body is saying, we're good, we don't need it. And that's, it, it's not what most people uh, endure, but it's it's the other side of the continuum. That's very important. Yeah. And so I think, you know, what do, what do we see in general Joe, you've seen so many clients um, when, you know, I, you're the classic sort of meso endo. Uh, I am about as classic of, as, of an ecto as you get, um, maybe a little bit meso ecto. Uh, but, you know, what do you what do you find generally about the genetic metabolisms that these individual body types start with uh, that, you know, that they have to work with? Well, there's an interesting connection. I it's, I, I don't I don't think Dr. Barry Sears was a serious researcher. I may be wrong, but he, of course, created the whole zone book phenomena. Right. His main premise points is that our bodies actually do try to navigate toward a homeostatic norm. And that's why it's an interesting connection to Ponzer's work here. Uh, if you're 100 pounds overweight, you don't have to do a lot to start losing a lot of weight. Like you just stop eating horribly start adding any activity and you're going to drop four or five, five pounds a week. It's just easy. Your body wants to go back down there. Um, those of us who are underweight, you know, possibly in a, in a forced way, you just haven't had enough food. Your body is naturally going to want to, I mean, I mean, think of the people who are physique competitors here who have reduced their calories intentionally for months and months and months. I mean, as soon as that contest is over, uh, the floodgates are open. You're you are ready to eat, and your body's saying, you know, grab a fork. So you're in a special class because, as you describe it, on a continuum, 
you know, I've recently seen some people say that, you know, body type phenotypes are really also kind of an error. There aren't just three body types, which again, I agree, it's a 100% continuum. But you lump those things together, as in research are called like modal groupings. Like, yeah, I mean, we you can look at them in three distinct types, but we're just on that continuum. You may be way, way, way down there where it's just difficult to add any weight whatsoever. I don't know why, like human beings evolved that way because it is kind of counter to survival, right? Um, but at the same time, you know, energy output is high. You know, a, a, a classic extreme ectomorph is somebody who's always on the go, always alert. You can't shut your brain off. You're go, go, go. You're just burning energy. Yeah. So, you know, there's an evolutionary advantage to that, not physically, but because of just mental energy and mental prowess. So, yeah, I mean, I, I have my screen share off or my screen shot off my my video off during the lecture because I'm I'm like constantly walking around my office and moving around. And I just can't freaking sit still. You know, when, I when can I'm concentrate, the- but I can't do it sitting still. Video chats are funny to me because I have to sit here in front of the camera. When I have a phone call, I'm I probably put in like three miles an hour because I'm yeah. just, just walk around my whole facility with my phone on speaker. Uh, yeah, good, good stuff. Any other uh, thoughts or questions, you guys? The the coach who asked me this question and, and you know, sight unseen, I'd never seen the book burn. I'd never heard of Herman Ponser. And again, trying to just suppress my natural skepticism, I said, sure, I'll take a look. But as soon as I saw the tagline to the book title and so forth, I said, you realize you're not going to find out too much all of a sudden that we we've just never known about physiology or metabolism. So I, I knew it wouldn't take me long to find out where that fulcrum was between what's, what's the real usable information versus it's just marketing hype. Uh, so yeah, I, I think it's for some people who are think of the influencers out there, the people who know nothing about our world and they're just watching TikTok all day and they hear some of these things like, Hey, eating less processed food is important. Like stop doing six hours of cardio a day. That's not going to do it for you. Focus on higher quality, less food. Like, Hey, that may help somebody that, that may be worth writing that book. Uh, the fact that our metabolisms don't change much from 20 to 60 and, you know, gets somebody to stop blaming their, their age or their circumstances and look more at their behavior. Great. That's worth the book. But, you know, I, I just don't think there's a ton for us to really learn here, but, Going back to his home base of anthropology, some really cool stuff you can dig into if you look this guy up uh, and and see as he's looking at different populations and cultural groups. Uh, that's that that's where the fun was for me. And sometimes when you want to reach an audience, you know, it's just the right teacher saying it the right way that gets someone to get it. I mean, this the, there was nothing new. I, as soon as I was looking at the slides, I thought that, I mean, it was absolutely just intuitive before you showed the graphs that of course that this caloric expenditure is just on a per kilogram basis, right? I mean, a bigger body needs to to move more. Now, there, now if you had another person the same size as me in a different body composition, um, I bet we'd have a disparity in our, in our, you know, food intake and our caloric needs and our metabolic rates. But again, that would require 
that would also reflect fat-free mass. Because since I'm carrying a lot less body fat, if somebody else is the same weight as me, but carries more body fat, then yeah, they're probably arguably not going to have potentially the same caloric burn. But I don't know how you how you think about that in terms of, um, you know, if we've got different body compositions and same kilogram weight, what did you glean from that, Joe? Well, that's where that's where just the spectrum or continuum of metabolic capacity really lies, because okay. these are averages of 6,400 people around the world compared to a handful of people from this Tanzanian group. But, you know, I have clients who weigh 150 pounds and they're eating 4,000 calories a day. I have clients who weigh the same and they're eating 2,000 calories a day. So, you know, that's where the difference of just sheer metabolic capacity and body type lie. I mean, that's, and that's where we try to compare ourselves to the other person. Hey, how come they get to eat that much and I don't? Well, now it's just the genetic difference. Yeah. Amy, you jumping in? Yeah, it's funny. That's actually what I was almost exactly going to say. When you look, going back, you were speaking about fighting at the beginning of the, or a fight. Mm -hmm. Fighters watching MMA fights specifically, because there are so many different weight categories and men and women, it just shows you how two people can have, but you would, let's just say they have equal training. They have equal training. They have equal skills. They have equal effort put into maintaining their body composition where it is for that moment. And yet they can look completely different. And you would think, I mean, these are highly trained athletes. They have equal diet, perhaps even, and even that, even all things considered, you know, that's why I find studies with nutrition, you know, so fascinating because you'll never have a long-term study because each of us is essentially an N of one, even identical twins don't always have similar outcomes. And it was the Dutch hunger study or the Dutch famine that showed that, you know, the twins that experienced these famines differently had very different metabolic outcomes at 40 years. And those are the kinds of things that I think when you look at epigenetics and epidemiological studies of, of diet and nutrition, it becomes such a confounding thing because there is never going to be another exact replica of any of these ever. It's unethical. And that's why so much research is done in animals. I was in a large space last week where there were just thousands and thousands of people, every age, every, every sex, every race. And I, I, if, if you guys do this, like sometime when you're out in a, in a large space, look, look at everybody. It's almost weird that we're all the same species. Like we look so freaking different. I mean, in every single way, when I look at a hundred penguins, they all look like penguins. When I look at a hundred black bears, they all look like black bears. I mean, we just are so different. And part of that genetic diversity is what has helped us evolve faster. Uh, you know, it's really part of what has kept us at the top of the food chain. But we are in, we are so incredibly different that, to your point, it's it's sometimes difficult to look at these averages and then make assumptions because there is also so much diversity that goes into those averages. Good, good point. All right, guys. Well, this this was a fun topic for me because it was just kind of new and uh, and it does hit back home into some of the things from the physiological standpoint. So it, it has spurred me to want to dig deeper onto this and see if there is a little bit more on the biology side we can bring in. So that may be a good second step for us for next week. But any any other final thoughts or comments, Kevin, anything?
I was going to leave a smart ass comment that I'm on the opposite spectrum of metabolism because that's how I can get through all thir- 35 seasons of Simpsons in a day. I'm I'm fine to just sit on my ass, do nothing. You'll judge me, but what else is new? You know, and that's you're you, you probably eat accordingly. Like if you're for you to not gain body fat. But yes, I did throw that Simpsons comment in there for you, which you thought. Well, you just need to cool your excitement in the beginning next time. Oh, now you got my dog all riled up. Jeez. All right, man. Uh, Kate, were you going to jump in? Yeah, I just had a quick question for you. And so far as like when you read all this research and you do this stuff, like how does it affect your coaching? Because you could have two people that are kind of the same size, but it sounds like from this that different people have different needs right and so how do you approach coaching at all uh, i mean is it i guess that's my question how do you approach it so so there are all kinds of norms and formulas and things like like uh, austin kiergaard our dietetics director if he were on here he would say okay the average human needs 20 calories per hour or 20 to 32 and here's this and this and there are all these norms but again now we have to look at the diversity So I'll start by saying the way that I train coaches on the technical side of metabolism and food science is that we do have these norms. You have to start there, you know, pick a couple ways of measuring things and say, here's the framework of highs and lows. Now we have to look at demographics. Is this person 20 or 60, male or female, super active or not, complicating medical factors, they're hypothyroid, they're hyperthyroid, they're this, they're that. And then those demographics move you a little bit, but then you have the the advantage of a history. Tell me what you eat. Tell me what you've done. What's your health history, your diet history. And then, you know, assuming that that is pretty accurate information, you've got another piece of the puzzle. Then finally, real coaching is day-to-day, week-to-week scientific method application. We gather information, we interpret the results, we make a change. We gather information, we interpret it, we make another change. You just keep, and you find, you know, where people are. So to to, to your point, a, a client who hired me, I, I mentioned this in another podcast this week, a client hired me, to, you know, who has already dieted. He He's a reigning world champion physique competitor. He wants to do even better, wants to, um, you know, go into another class, win another world championship, defend his current title. So he contacted me, said, Joe, I'm a, I'm a big fan. I've watched all your stuff. Um, I'm already lean. Here are my pictures. I'm competing in a month. Will you help me peak? And I said, well, I'm honored. That would be great. But I have zero information about your body. Like, I know nothing. I know you're lean. I know you look good. I know what you looked like last year. So I, I said, you've got to send me pictures three times a day, every day, with your entire food intake, I want your morning weight, your your evening weight. And I have just had to look at that much information for the last month so that I really get to know his body. Because if I just looked at a textbook or a formula, it's not, it's gonna, it's gonna get my foot in the door, but it doesn't tell me what I need to know. So you to, to me, Kate, you have to have all that knowledge, like what you do in your career. I know how technical that is and all the things you do. And now it's okay. Now I have to apply that to every, every single case, you know, as we go. 
I think adding to that too, it's really important, you know, when you, when you're getting um, a new client, you know, it, it's not quite like your situation, Joe, where it's so under the gun, but if Caitlin's doing a lot of, of gen pop type um, clients and things, you really want to let them know this information up front that yes, we have to start with a guess because we have to have a basis in something. So we're going to start with a guess for an average person, but then we're going to get to know you and we're going to get to know what works for you. So give them that confidence that that they are not going to be like, oh my gosh, it's so little food, I'm dying. Or, um, oh my gosh, I, I'm not, the scale isn't moving at all. You know, that kind of stuff. Uh, that you're going to encourage them to, to have that really close feedback um, as a get to know you kind of a thing because you understand, you know, you as a coach can, the, the confidence that they will hear from you is that you as a coach know that everybody's different and we have to start somewhere, but I know that I will find the way that works specifically for you as we work together. And Kate, for you as a client, that's a fun thing. I hope that you experience because you're figuring this stuff out for yourself as well. Like what makes me different than, you know, another person. So, you know, always that's, that's why our premise in our company is education, education, education. You know, you're hopefully getting a very good quality experience, but it's primarily going to be that learning process of all the technical pieces. So you can take it with you for the rest of your life. So, all right, guys, we have hit the, uh, hit the hour here. So I'll let you go. But like I said, this kind of inspired me for a good little bit more technical part for uh, next week. So we'll probably do a, a second part in this series. And I uh, hope you guys have a good rest of your weekend.